listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and leader of the firm's inbound tax practice. We're glad to have you join us. Enjoy the program. Not too long ago, we released an episode on Mexico's Mandatory Disclosure Regime, or MDR. Hot on the heels of Mexico's release is Argentina's version of MDR, and the two are proof positive that OECD's BEPS Action 12 is not a minimum standard, as they are quite different, yet, in their unique ways, equally intimidating. With the Argentinian rules on the near, if not immediate, horizon, we thought it would be important to start getting our arms around them. And so joining me today for this discussion are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, International Tax Principal from KPMG's Detroit office, and Juan Martin Jovanovich, Head of Legal Services from KPMG Argentina. Thank you, Kim. There are some really unique qualities in the Argentinian MDR rules that are different than what we've seen even in Mexico and certainly different than the DAC-6 rules. I think it's important that we have this discussion today. Great. Juan Martin, I know that these rules jumped on the radar pretty recently. Can you just give us a little bit background on how they arrived, when they arrived, and what's been our immediate future? Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Courtney. Well, you know, these rules have been published on October 20, 2020, and they are supposed to become in effect immediately, but you have some pending implementation there. For example, According to the resolution, the tax administration is supposed to establish certain monetary thresholds for the reporting obligation to be operative. The list of hallmarks or transactions that need to be reported are going to be published in the tax administration website. In the case of national tax planning, you have no clue. Even the way you have to access the website in order to declare or the format of declaration, today there's no way to report. All those rules are going to be published in the website, and we don't know exactly when. Wait, so <laughs> so if I heard you right, these rules are in effect right now. Something shows up in the Gazette, we have to start complying immediately, and the only thing that is holding up compliance is the fact that there are not regulations posted or any concrete mechanisms for actually complying. Is that right? You're exactly right. But anyway, we, we are used to that. I mean, it's not the first time the tax administration is doing this. I mean, tax administration has implemented many other resolutions with information included in a, in, in a website. So, Kim, this one is interesting to me as well, because certainly as we've been working with some of our clients in getting their process in place around capturing some of this information, it seems interesting to me that we're often starting with a cross-border arrangement. And with the Argentinian rules, it's not necessarily the case. In tax six, Poland was the outlier because it had domestic schemes. Mexico did not feature domestic schemes at all. Yeah, basically, we have a a broad definition of what tax planning is an agreement or scheme, plan, or action for which a tax advantage or benefits results. In the case of national tax planning, all the transactions or schemes occur in Argentina. In the case of international tax planning, the structure must involve Argentina and one or more jurisdictions. So Juan Martinez, can you take us through some of the main hallmarks that we should be considering here? Yeah, of course. I mean, first, remember that in the case of national tax planning, we have not yet received the hallmarks from the administration because they're going to be published in the website. 
In the case of international tax planning hallmarks, we have a list of them, but that list is going to be supplemented in the website. The ones that are published in the resolution, let me summarize when companies are used to take advantage of tax treaties, when there are strategies adopted in order to avoid the configuration of a permanent establishment, when the taxpayer achieves double non-taxation, or when the scheme permits the allocation of one or more taxable basis in foreign jurisdictions, I mean, when there's a shift or an erosion of the taxable base, or also when the structure or the arrangements are used to avoid an information regime. Another hallmark is the use of non-cooperating or low tax jurisdictions in the structure. Also, when the taxpayer takes advantage of the asymmetries existing among the tax laws of two or more jurisdictions, respect to the qualification of an entity. I think this is referring to hybrid structures. Also, when the structure involves double tax residency. Looking at these hallmarks, some of them are more clearly features of what I would think of as classic aggressive tax planning or tax arbitrage, whereas others are pretty much plain vanilla. I think, as we've noted in the Mexican MDR rules, the avoidance of permanent establishment is... uh, it's pretty ubiquitous in terms of the type of tax <laughs> advice people would come to us for and we would give and not thinking about that as particularly aggressive, but it seems to be a trap for the unwary. Juan Martin, we've seen in other instances that you don't necessarily need an implemented plan to trigger the reporting rules. Is that the case here? Can a mere proposal or even a plan that starts being implemented but is abandoned mid-stride, can that trigger reporting? Kim, I don't think so. The way that this resolution was drafted, to me, the structure, the agreement, the arrangement needs to be implemented. So it needs to be in place. I mean, it's not enough just to have a mere opinion or advice on the structure to trigger the reporting obligation. So the common feature we see in some of these rules, Juan Martin, certainly is a just-in-time reporting requirement. Can you take us through some of those for the Argentinian rules? The national tax planning schemes must be reported until the last day of the first month after the end of fiscal year in which the planning, the tax planning was implemented. So basically, if the national planning scheme was implemented during 2020, it will have to be reported generally the 31st. In the case of international tax planning, it's a very short period. It's 10 days from the date on which the implementation is initiated. Is there a look-back period? I mean, there, are, there must be a look-back period, <laughs> right? There is one. In the case of tax planning schemes, which have been implemented from January the 1st, 2019, or even if they were implemented before that date, if they are still in place, they must be informed or reported before January the 29th, 2021. So that's the look-back period, and the problem is that if the tax plan is still in place, there's no limit to the past. That seems familiar. I mean, we, we heard the same paradigm out of the Mexican rules. At least in Mexico, you have decided, at least subject to guidance, that they're just going to use, as a practical matter, the five-year statute of limitations period. Is there any kind of rule of thumb that is developing in Argentina? The statute of limitations may be one approach as a limitation to, to the obligation to report, but the tax administration is looking for structures that are still in place and are still having effects. So I don't know if that's the approach that they're going to be accepting. Of course, I think there's always a reasonability test. And in fact, as tax advisors, we don't know which of those structures are still in place because we cannot be asking the taxpayer if they are still using the structure 
So I think that reasonability test should be used as a guidance here. The taxpayer, they can just simply say, hey, it's not of your business. We are not going to tell you. In those situations, it's going to be more the obligation of taxpayers eventually and not ours. So, Juan Martin, who's obligated to do the reporting? I mean, in looking at other regimes, sometimes it's the tax advisors, sometimes it's the taxpayer. In our case, it is both taxpayers and tax advisors. And what is interesting is that the obligations are autonomous. The reporting of the transaction by one of them is not excluding the obligation to report the same transaction by the other one. So if the taxpayer reports, the tax advisors, all of them have to report transaction as long as they have participated in the implementation. It is not just the advisors that assist, advise, or provide an opinion on the structure, on the agreement, but it's important that they participate in such implementation directly or indirectly to third parties. Of course, the idea of participation in implementation is very broad. That's, again, subject to interpretation, right? Participation in implementation could be drafting don't know, a loan agreement, a lease agreement, or the organization of a corporation. It is enough to be drafting the loan agreement, or we need that loan agreement be actually signed and enforced. These are all questions that maybe we're going to receive further guidance from the tax administration. I find it really concerning that all of the advisors plus the taxpayer would have side-by-side obligations to file, and that there's no offset, because to me that means that you've increased exponentially the potential that you're going to get inconsistent filings because the different advisors have different views of the transaction and what the transaction does or the implications of the transaction. What are taxpayers doing to control that? Are they requiring an engagement letters that everyone coordinate or are the advisors requiring that? What has been the reaction of the industry? Kim, this is pretty new. So we don't know exactly what's going to be the reaction of taxpayers, what's going to be the reaction of tax advisors, but I agree that this may exponentially increase the risk of inconsistency. And the problem is that the tax administration will probably take advantage of those inconsistencies. I think we'll have to have a lot of coordination with the taxpayers, with tax advisors, probably, as you said, some provisions, engagement letters and agreements. Of course, we have to take into account there that there may be limitations in respect to professional secrecy rules or legal privilege. So just so I understand, is it that a law firm could otherwise take the position that they do not have to report based on privilege? The resolution says that we don't have to report when we are covered by legal professional secrecy rules or by legal privilege, but we have to notify the taxpayers through the website, through the tax administration's website. So the tax mission will know when we cannot report and who the client is. And that, in a way, is a violation of the professional secrecy rules because we are telling the administration that we have a secret, and that's part of the secret. That's going to be a problem because if, for example, attorneys violate the professional secrecy rules, that's a crime. Do the rules extend to accountants and the accounting professionals as well? That's interesting because, you know, both uh, attorneys and accountants have professional secrecy rules or privilege. In my opinion, both are covered by professional secrecy rules. If they violate those rules, that may be a crime. I would say that in both cases, professional secrecy may be challenged. 
It seems like a solution to that maybe to adopt the German approach. Um, my understanding of the German rules is that if there's privilege protection, there's a requirement to do the reporting with respect to the transaction, but not to name the taxpayer. So the German tax authorities get the heads up that something's going on, but because you're not naming the taxpayer, you're not actually violating privilege. Absolutely, Kim, absolutely. In fact, the German example was presented to the tax administration and they proposed as a possible solution. If I were a client, I don't think I would tell you. Maybe that means that I alone would have an obligation, but I think I could live with that because I certainly don't want inconsistent reports being filed with respect to my transactions. Kim, as we're thinking through this, there are so many open questions to me, at least, as it relates to the advisors and the advisor's responsibility in this. Where does privilege stop or start? What's the relationship between other advisors? There are a lot of questions and open areas of thought around that piece of this. Sure. And, and believe me, Cornelius, we're going to have a lot of litigation in this aspect. The Bar Association of the City of Buenos Aires and probably the CPE's uh, association, the Public Accountants Association, will probably be litigating this measure. Can you maybe talk to us about penalties. It may be a little bit early on in the day, but might as well talk about what happens if we, for whatever reason, miss the 10 business day cycle on reporting. Yeah, of course. So first we have the penalties or the fines for non-reporting. The fine is not that significant. I mean, it's a fine of US dollars, approximately US dollar 120 to US dollars 240. But it's more important here is that the non-compliance with the reporting obligation is an aggravating circumstances in the case of fines for tax. So if we do not report, tax administration is going to be applying higher fines. But there are other consequences that are not strictly sanctions, even though they can be regarded as that. And basically, if the taxpayer fails to report the transaction, then the taxpayer may be excluded from some registry implemented by tax administration that grants some benefits or permits certain special regimes. For example, the, the taxpayer would be excluded from the importers and exporter registry and then he will not be able to, to import or export. Or it may be excluded from the grain crops registry or the oil and hydrocarbons registry. Or it may be that the, the failure to report may prevent the taxpayer from obtaining certain a tax credit certificates, certificates of good standing for social security purposes or even include the taxpayer in high-risk tax-risk categories. These are all collateral consequences that may arise from the failure to report. And to me, this is the big bite of these rules. I think if you look at DAC 6, the monetary penalties range, and I think in at least one jurisdiction, there's personal liability at the director level. I think that's Germany. We saw in Mexico that the monetary penalties could be enormous because there's the economic penalty that not only do you get a clawback of the intended tax benefit that is unreported, but you could get an economic penalty in addition to that of 50 to 75 percent of that intended tax benefit. Here, you get a little bit of a different slice. The real issue to me is on your ability to import or export goods. That is the commercial sanction that goes to the very heart of your business. And that is, to me, the most compelling reason why people really need to be paying attention to these rules. Juan Martin, thanks so much for taking us through these rules. I know these are complicated. And again, to me, there's a sense of urgency and anxiety, not just because they are in effect as we speak, and that's the urgency part, but the, the anxiety part is that there aren't a lot of rules. 
hopefully you'll keep us posted if and to the extent that we get guidance. In the meantime, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Stay well. We'll speak soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. Bye.